0: Each of these persons had a name. We are going to have a startup for each of those names.
1: In memory of Yaron Noni Ori Shai. Today, we're running another special episode of Invested in light of the atrocities that occurred in Israel on October 7th and the incredible response of Israeli society since. I'm here with Izhar Shai, uh, who is an entrepreneur. Uh, he was a minister in Israel's government, the minister of science and technology and, and, and innovation. He was a venture capitalist, uh, like I am, uh, Ishar, thank you for joining us on Invested in light of what's going on right now in the country, uh, specifically, uh, your family. And before we start, I just want to extend our condolences and say, how sorry are for your loss uh, of your son, Yaron. uh a real hero who died not only defending the country, but saving countless lives, which we'll get into soon. Uh, so first, could you introduce yourself?
0: And then I'd love to hear more about your role. Thank you, Michael, for having me here. Uh, I think that what you're doing is important in terms of uh, delivering uh, not only the news and the updates, but also the, the insights as to what is going on in Israel and how the ecosystem, the innovation ecosystem, is coping with uh, this uh, uh, kind of significant challenge. And it is coping. It is important to say that. So, um, as you said, I am a venture capitalist. Uh, I was the uh, Minister of Science and Technology for the Israeli government. Um, And uh, in the context of our discussion today, I was for 21 years the very proud father of uh, Yaron, Ori Shai, our youngest uh, son. Uh, Yaron has uh, three siblings. Uh, My daughter, who is uh, 33 years old, Shil. My son, Yo, at uh, 30 years old, and Ophir, who is 26. Yaron was our youngest. Um, he was a soldier within a special uh, unit of the Nahal Brigade. Uh, and they were stationed at the border for a few weeks before October 7th. Their mission at the border between uh, the Gaza Strip and Israel was actually to keep the peace between the two sides of the fence, to let uh, people go about their agricultural, agricultural business and other businesses in both sides of uh, the fence. Uh, on October 7th, they were there as from the the first um, launch of uh, rockets and uh, missiles against uh, Israel. Uh, their unit uh, responded as they should have, because uh, this was their mission. When peace turns into war, when the uh, you know the the ceasefire is broken by the other side, what the IDF is supposed to do is uh, to uh, to respond and to protect the civilians. This is what uh, um unit uh, did on the southern side of uh, the gaza Strip uh, border they were stationed in an area called kerem shalom ironically enough kerem shalom is uh, the peace vineyards uh this is the name of the kibbutz and also the name of the army base which is adjacent to that kibbutz this is what uh, yoran's unit uh, was assigned to in terms of uh, their responsibility and they responded immediately they were attacked in that area by hundreds of uh, highly trained very well equipped uh, hamas terrorists whose mission was uh, to move into the kibbutz and the torture and murder innocent civilians babies young women families whomever they would be able to to get uh, hold of as they did in many other places in that region Um, but in this case the unit uh, stood uh, uh, against them and uh, was able to maintain both lines in the army base and in the kibbutz. The end result is uh, significant for the unit itself. The commander of the unit was killed in action. His um, um, his uh, deputy commander was also killed, a number of other officers and soldiers, including our son Yaron, uh, when they uh, were facing basically a uh, a higher number of uh, of uh, terrorists, but they maintained the the line. Not nobody was um, uh, was affected on the side of the civilians in the kibbutz, and none of the, the military women who were in charge of uh, the the radars and the the various electronic equipment the devices that are in the base, none of them was hurt. Uh, which is quite an accomplishment, as uh, opposed to the short results in other areas.
1: Um, the soldiers in in Yaron's brigade and the Nahal brigade there uh, were able to defend against these rapists and terrorists coming in. Uh, in other areas where they broke through, they they raped many women, including women soldiers, some of which have been taken into captivity. There's now 240 uh, kidnapped uh, Israelis, Americans, and Thais uh, who have been taken in to the Gaza Strip by by the Hamas jihadi. Uh, uh, terrorists. Um, and, and the fact that, uh, your son and his brigade was able to stop the infiltration there, despite the, the, the horrific loss of life, um, in your son's brigade, uh, has saved countless more women, children a- and others from, uh, from a fate that befell others. And Yeah, um, yeah. That, that bravery is, is remarkable and it's just important to point out both the bravery and and the tragedy that, w- that was averted because of yeah it.
0: thank you for noting that out the, the mission of those uh, savages had was to to rape and behead and kill young babies and uh, torture families in front of their you know relatives just to make sure that everybody suffers and then uh, get rid of them by killing them in all kind of uh, savage uh, savage ways. so yeah this was a mission the mission was not accomplished in that region. Uh, the toll was uh, significant in terms of the military toll, but this is what the IDF is supposed to do. The IDF start from Israeli defense forces, and this is exactly what they did. They defended the civilians, they defended the state of Israel, and on that side of the border, the border was maintained. Um, Yaron himself was part of a team of three. Uh, that was actually the commanding post of uh, the unit. He was uh, adjacent to, uh, to the commander of the unit at that time, and another uh, soldier and the three of them stood uh, in heroic ways against uh, dozens and dozens of uh, terrorists. Again, very well equipped and uh, highly trained, they uh, responded. They were able to maintain the line. Actually, there is an interesting communications recording of the Hamas terrorists. Where the commanding, um, you know, the commander of the area of Hamas, kind of uh, um, shouts at his um, at his. People, Why do they not enter the kibbutz? And they tell him that there is a jeep that uh, they cannot uh, get rid of. There, there is some some kind of uh, response that they are not, unable to to overcome. And this is uh, exactly the, the jeep that, uh, or the, the, the unit that Yaron uh, was part of. Uh, eventually, after uh, fighting hard against dozens and dozens of terrorists, um, the, um, the three people were wounded. Uh, one of them was severely wounded. This is the driver. The other one was uh, severely wounded, who is Yaron. And the the third one was wounded, but still was able to to maintain uh, consciousness. And this is the the commander of the unit. And by some very heroic efforts of another officer, they were able to retrieve them back to to an area where they could uh, be treated first and then lifted by a helicopter uh, back to a hospital. And this is where Yaron was uh, pronounced uh, dead. And uh, the other soldier, by the way, He's recovering now, doing uh, relatively well. We are very happy for him. He will survive, and he will uh, be able to continue on with his life.
1: Now, when I came to visit you for a condolence call in the the Shiva, you were starting to piece together what happened uh, on that morning. Uh, One of the things that I heard when I was there um, was despite the massive numbers of Hamas terrorists, it seems that your son and and his crew took out a significant number of them. How much detail do you have now of what happened on that, on that morning?
0: You know, Michael, it's, uh, it's a very good question because we are gathering details uh, on the go because most of the soldiers who survived that day and can still uh, you know, be considered as uh, in condition to fight are in the Gaza Street now fighting against terrorists. So what we have is what we were able to gather from uh, wounded uh, soldiers each of them has their own perspective or their own very narrow angle as to what happened in their part of uh, the this section, which is totally fine because we are piecing together those pieces. And uh, we spoke actually with uh, Yawal's commander, the commander, who was hospitalized for three weeks. And by the way, he's now back in Gaza. He's a real hero. This guy this guy, really saved no, with his own soul and body, probably hundreds of people, just by commanding that unit, by standing still, killing himself as many people as he could, as many terrorists as he could, while responding personally to to the you know to his personal situation, but also by continuing to come to to command the unit itself. Interesting enough, you know, sometime at the afternoon, the unit was able to kind of tranquilize a little bit the situation so that they could. Bring in a chopper of a special uh, air force unit called Six Six Nine. This helicopter is assigned to take um, to take wounded people, wounded soldiers, to the hospital. This officer took uh, the uh, the wounded people with him, took some soldiers in order to bring them on to the helicopter. And then on the helicopter, you have a doctor who kind of does the arbitrage and decides who goes on and who goes off. And then he looked at this officer and said, "You must go on this helicopter." You're uh, wounded in a dangerous way, and the officer looks at him and says, "There's no way I'm going up the helicopter." He turned back, stayed, uh, and stayed on the ground while the helicopter had to immediately take off because of the shooting around them. Um, so this guy uh, was indeed the, the, the commander of own He was also a very good friend of your and he took his death very personal ways. But he's a real hero. And uh, after three weeks in hospital and treatments and so on. Is back in Gaza is from Friday, uh, with his soldiers fighting, their arm uh, to arm, shoulder to shoulder with them. Wow, that's that's incredible, inspiring. I- I'd like you to just take a couple minutes and tell us about about Yaron. So, yeah, um, Yaron was our youngest. He was on uh, twenty one years um, at his uh, following in Kiryat Shalom. Uh, interesting to note, Yaron was an American citizen. He was born in the USA. He was uh, brought up as a young. Jewish American kid until the age of five, which is when we decided to relocate back to Israel. Uh, he also attended the, the American... New Jersey, right? right? New Jersey, yes. Uh, he was born in Ridgewood, New Jersey, or grew up in uh, And Then uh, when we relocated back to Israel, he actually attended the American high school program here in Israel. So uh, his education is half Israeli and half American by training. Um, and he was, uh, I should say, a proud Israeli-American citizen. He obviously fought for the Israeli army, the IDF. But uh, I believe that we should all understand that he also fought for the American values of freedom, um, on the, the the American, uh, you know, basic norms of uh, of culture of the, the Western world. And uh, uh, he died defending those basic values, uh, which are, I think, uh, shared both americans and israelis this is important to note as a kid and as a young adult uh, well first of all you know that, not the most important feature but still he was very handsome he had his uh, bright blue eyes uh and very he was very good looking we always used to say that he is the better version of all of us he looked much better than i do he was uh, way more sophisticated than his siblings they told him so you know, this is not something that we are now saying after he's passing away. This is something that he was told why he was still um, here with us. He was crowned like the, the, the king of the house for all kinds of reasons. He was very modest, so he never took this uh, you know in the wrong way. Um, he was uh, shy and modest, but still a very charismatic leader. Uh, he was um, a, uh, a leader in the Tsofim, in the Scouts, where he spent a good number of years Then he volunteered in a gap year between high school and uh, joining the the IDF. He volunteered with kids from uh, economically challenged families in the south of Tel Aviv. Did this for a year. And then he volunteered to the best he could in the Israeli army. He was very proud to have joined a special unit within the Nahal Brigade. Um, This is a unit where you have to work very hard for about 13 months until you earn the title of a, a combat soldier in that unit. So you work, you sweat, you, you freeze in the cold, in the rain, you you walk many, many long nights, uh, and then you do all kinds of crazy stuff until you are qualified to fight for the defense of uh, the Israeli citizens to join this uh, special unit. Uh, he was actually eventually qualified in February of this year, 2023. He was over- awarded an Excellence uh, Award for having been an outstanding soldier, um, sadly enough, the officer who gave him that title in a special ceremony also died in the same uh, on the same day, uh, fighting against terrorists. But uh, you know, we still have that um, the title in our house. Both their names uh, indicate, some symbolic, in some symbolic way, the connection between them. Um, and uh, I should also add to that, own was a musician. He liked to play the piano. He did this for about 11 years. He was very talented in music, liked to sing. He, was, he had the excellences of humor and was an avid sports fan uh, in terms of just understanding sport, liking very much or being a fan of a local team here at Tel Aviv, but also he was a fan of America sports, NBA and NFL. You could not... Uh, find him unprepared. If you watched an NFL game, he would tell you the name of the quarterbacks, uh, the, the names of, uh, of uh, the, the runner, anybody who is there on the field and the coaches and everything. He understood games in a very professional way. Yeah, I I, I think
1: I remember that at the shiva when I came to visit you, there was a story that stuck with me about like a little pact he was supposed to have with his sister who was left to babysit him.
0: Yeah, so...
1: I asked you to share that story or is it too no, personal? No, no. I'm
0: happy. We, well, you know, we actually opened a Facebook group called Noni's Stories. It's in Hebrew, Sipurei Noni, the stories about Noni or offline. So, and in that group, we actually encouraged friends, family, anybody who had any kind of dealings with them uh, to, to upload their stories. The only condition was they had to be verified true stories. So we asked nobody to say that he was an excellent math student because he was not. Actually, the teachers were in love with him, and he was an excellent math practitioner. But he never liked you know, to, to do that much of uh, homework or anything. He, he was just a bright uh, guy. So anyway, uh, there are all kinds of uh, very interesting, funny stories. Uh, there are many telling stories as well about his leadership, about his uh, friendship, his support of other people. But uh, this story that you're referring to is kind of funny. So at a certain point in high school, we, he, myself, my wife and myself, Yaron's mother, we traveled to the U.S. for a week for one of my business trips, and we live Yavon at home. He's a high schooler, and his sister is probably 20-plus years old. She's after her army duty. She's responsible. She's the responsible adult for that week, and what we asked her to do is to make sure that he prepares for this big exam that he has to attend. And her duty is to keep him focused and all that. And at a certain point, she comes to him during that week and says, Yaron, yeah, well, I have a new boyfriend. And here's the deal. Rotem is coming to our house. We are going to watch a movie together. You are not to tell anything to our parents because I don't want to report to anything until I find out that this is serious enough worthwhile to report. So uh, the deal is I'm going to tell her that you're... Uh, keeping track of your uh, preparations for the exam, you are not going to tell the managing that's the deal. He says, Okay, she'll that's her name. I'm going to keep this deal uh, going. By, by the way, I should say, Rotem did qualify, he's today her husband and the father of our granddaughter. So apparently, it was an important way. Um, but next thing she hears, she sits with uh, Rotem in our living room. They watch a movie and she hears Yaron calling her mom, my wife, Shila, And we hear this on the other side. So Yaron calls Hila and says, Mom, how are you and she says, How are you doing what, what about the uh, the exam that you're having tomorrow He said, Well, I wanted to do my preparations, but she brought in a new guy and they are uh, shouting and doing all kinds of noises. I just can't prepare properly, so I'm not doing my homework and then work that was the uh, that that was what called the deal off uh he had the total leverage of negotiations uh, from that point, and um, this was his day of his way of doing business <laughs> that's a that's a great story um so Little known
1: fact is that uh, uh, you had a startup company called Business Layers, where the firm I was at at the time, Israel Seed Partners, was the investor. And I even sat around your board table. Uh, I don't think I was the official board member, but I was at a lot of board meetings in uh, in New Jersey and in, in, and in Israel. And uh, you've been not just a startup entrepreneur and not just a venture capitalist, but a, but a minister of science, technology, uh, and innovation. And uh, I think it's fair to say and when I came to uh, the Shiva, uh, you saw it everywhere. Uh, the whole high-tech community uh, has an incredible fondness for you and for your family. Uh, and everyone was there. Uh, and then you did something which just like lit up. You said, uh, for every uh, person who was killed on October 7th in the massacre and, and the wounds that ensued, we need to set up a startup, uh, a new innovative startup. And the post went absolutely viral. And I still hear people were thirty six or seven days past that, and people are still talking about Isar Shai's uh, uh, inspiration to set up a startup. Uh, And even I've seen, by the way, startups be named uh, or you know adopt fallen soldiers. So tell us about the inspiration for that. Tell us what you're looking to accomplish, uh, and and how you think it's going. Thirty seven days in or so. So
0: Thank you for bringing bringing this up. This is important for me, and I think that also for Israel. So. Uh, first of all, this is now past the, the face of uh, being just a vision. We have put together a steering committee. We have what we think is a good name. The name of this project, so to speak, is Next October. Um, and Next October kind of indicates that we are looking forward and we are looking forward to a better future. And Next October will definitely look much better than this past October. Um, but it also records a timeline of the next 12 months. And what we want to accomplish is we want to make sure that our response to this um, sheer evil, you can't call this otherwise, we faced uh, the most evil, uh, atrocious uh, set of activities that uh, a person could think of. Our response to that is by creating, by innovating, by uh, bringing good to the world as a response to everything that those savages wanted to bring upon us. And uh, first of all, thinking about the economic aspect of this, we we are set to establish a startup for any person who lost their lives during this uh, atrocious attack on the state of Israel. And uh, we are today counting, lamentably, about 1,400 people. Uh, About 300-plus of them are soldiers, but most of them are civilians. Hundreds of kids and babies, hundreds of uh, young ladies, elderly, just civilians people who were attacking their homes while celebrating a holy celebration, a holy day in Israel, the, the last day of Sukkot, and a Saturday they coincided on the, the same day. These people were attacked and uh, atrociously murdered. And we, what we want to respond to that is each of these persons had a name. We are going to have a startup for each of those names. The startup will have their own names as any startup should they will also carry the responsibility to memorize and to uh, to make sure that the world knows about the person who lost his or her life during that uh, that uh, tragic day uh those startups are going to be filtered screened selected and funded as any other startup does here in Israel which means that we are not uh, you know we are not giving concessions in terms of the quality of the concept that the startup has to go on this is not a charity. No. This is this is a business. Yeah, thank you for mentioning. Yeah. And uh, what I said and I keep saying is I'm not looking for donations. I'm encouraging investments. And when you consider an investment in an Israeli company, you know, you do your professional judgment, but uh, the statistics, the historic statistics, and you'll know this uh, as I do, Michael, are that uh, you are likely to make good returns if you uh, invest in smart ways. For example, if you invest in Aleph as a VC, and you didn't tell me to, to say that, so I, I feel free to, to use the Alex as an example. You're putting your hands in the hand. sorry, you're putting your money in the hands of professionals. They will make the selection for you. Those startups have to qualify. But we have to encourage people to go back to, to innovation and to put together startups. And this is why this initiative is important in terms of putting the word out, making sure that Israeli entrepreneurs know that the infrastructure is there to support their uh, putting together of new startups, In um, an average year, in Israel, we have about 400 to 500 new companies. So we are not talking, you know, a a change in orders of magnitude. What we are targeting is 1,400 startups. So so we need to put some more effort. We need to put some more money. But the cost is not that uh, prohibitive. And the idea is that when we have those 1,400 startups around, first of all, we kind of uh, regenerate uh, the Israeli economy. We put some more fuel to work in uh, job opportunities. We create uh, new small companies that within two or three years will grow and provide uh, opportunities for tens and then hundreds of people to work within those uh, companies. But as important as that, we are bringing innovation to the world. As uh, people probably know who are watching us, an Israeli startup sells their product to the world. They promote their services to the, the global markets. And so for each of these startups, there is a global market and the end result is 1,400 new innovative products or services that will cater into the global community and will be the right response to either we are bringing innovation to agriculture, to energy needs, to, to financial sectors, everywhere where there is a need for innovation. And this is the response that the world really needs. And I'm very happy to see that uh, this is taking off. So we have put together a steering committee. We have started to talk to investors. We are not going to replace uh, investors, the people who have been doing the job so far. We are going to encourage many more uh, international investors and the international foundations, some of them are on a G2G basis, some of them on a business basis, just to come in and invest. And uh, pretty much as uh, you saw the trend in impact investments over the last decade, People invest first of all to make money, but they also invest for a good purpose. There is no better purpose than this one. We are promoting a better world as a response to the worst of the worst of the concepts that the savages may may have had about us.
1: I think uh, one of the other things is is if uh, the families of the people who have uh, have been killed. This is a a, a lively way uh, to uh, build a connection between them and and, and obviously entrepreneurs and. And number two, so that their strength can show up also in the strength of the Israeli economy and the Israeli and the Israeli DNA. You know, my kids told I, I found out about this because one of my kids called me and said, Did you see what your friend Ishar Shai uh said? And I said, No, no, I hadn't. And then they told me and I said, Oh, that is actually exactly Ishar. It fits him like uh fits him like a glove and uh, so true to who you are. But that caused me to ask a question I ask on all the podcasts, which is What's, you know, if you have to kind of define what your core value is and what drives you, what what is it? You mean me personally?
0: <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I, I think I know, by the way, but I'm going to ask you anyway. You know,
0: uh, my my wife always says that if you talk about more than three values, they are not core values. So I'm going to be very careful here. Um, you know, I think that only the personal level, the value of um uh, humanity and love love for people however and whomever they are i think this is one of the the guidelines that i was brought upon that guides me and also uh, hopefully guides my kids through our education uh, but then along with that we are very proud jewish zionists uh zionists you know my parents came to israel from argentina about 70 years ago to establish a kibbutz in the negev by the way which was very severely affected by the, the savages, and some of our best friends in that kibbutz have suffered uh, suffered very tragic, significant losses. Uh, but they came to a kibbutz, and uh, I was brought up to, to, um, to give back to a community, to do whatever I can in order to protect this uh, nation, this country, which is uh, what my parents uh, came for uh, uh, when they did Aliyah to Israel, which may resonate with you, Michael. You also made your own choice about coming to Israel a number of years ago. Um, so Zionism and being a very proud Jewish Israeli is another uh, a core value of um, you know of what we try to do at home. And I think that the combination of uh, those values along, by the way, with the general values of uh, freedom and liberalism and just living as a free person in a free world, um, those are the, the guiding lines in our whole Um I guess that education worked to the extent that each of our kids tried to do their best at high school, and giving back to community, and the gap here between high school and uh, their military service, and then doing their best at uh, the military service as well. I, I've always thought that
1: yeah uh, that the core value that animates you is uh, service and empowering others to be better. That's what I've always thought about you. And you're uh, way better.
0: You're way uh, better uh, at definitions than I am. So I take this one over. Not
1: all this, and you know, I uh, uh, you know. I don't know that I know you as well as you know yourself or that your wife knows you, but I've always admired that about you. I want to ask you, the former minister and your venture capitalist, where do you think Israeli high tech goes from here?
0: It's a good question. You know, uh, We entered this crisis in a crisis load already because of the economic, uh, global issues that we were facing over the last 12 months. And then on top of that, we had some internal issues here in Israel, so we Kind of uh, went into this uh, war while already having on our back uh, a challenge that had to be addressed. Uh, we are now in a state of war, but uh, you know, my instinct and also experience uh, indicate to me that recovery is imminent and will be uh, likely uh, intensive and uh, and quick in terms of uh, our uh, way to to achieve new heights and uh, to to get back to normality within the Israeli high-tech. The gating point is actually the end of the conflict. Based on 75 years of conflicts in Israel, you know, within a few months from now, we are going to talk about past events and we are going to face the opportunities that we always faced when those conflicts were over. Actually, the good news are that in this case, it looks like our government is damn serious about solving for one and for all uh, the, the southern part of the conflict and hopefully also the northern part of the conflict. So in terms of the international trust in the Israeli economy and the geopolitical situation in this region, I personally am personally optimistic here within six to nine months, we are going to look at a different situation, which means that we are going to have the trust of the international investors community. People are going to be able to go back to work and then we have to resume normality. It will take us a couple of years to resume the pace that we had uh, during 2021, it was a record year in terms of investments in Israel. There is no reason why we should not get back to 25 to 30 billion dollars on an annual basis of investments in the Israeli high tech. Uh, and when that happens, you know, uh, you probably know this uh, as I do, Michael. The, the ideas that you see around here, the innovation, and the spirit of entrepreneurship have never gone anywhere. They they are. They are here, they are here to stay. And so we are going to see many new innovative ideas. We are going to see many new startup companies growing through all the phases, early stage, two guys in a garage, all the way to big companies of thousands of people uh, doing great so things for the Israeli high tech for the global innovation. We also see, I don't know if you see this
1: as well, we see and hear of people coming back to Israel now. Um, and people moving, there, there's a mass move, as best I can tell, back to Israel. And I guess the the violence at America, the anti-Semitism in American universities uh, and in graduate programs, is probably going to accelerate this.
0: Do you see this as oh, well? Yeah, absolutely. I just had a by coincidence a meeting yesterday with a guy who spent his last twenty five years in Philadelphia, and just moved back, and he's here to stay. And uh, I hear the same from other people that I know of in Silicon Valley and other places. You know. Uh, This is also a nice, interesting response to what these savages were trying to do to us. I mean, they tried to eliminate our existence here. The opposite happened. They are going to be eliminated, and we are going to increase our presence here. We are going to to bring back many people who decided to stay elsewhere. Uh, It is totally fine for Israelis to, to live in California or in Europe or elsewhere, but many people have decided to come back to Israel which is a nice reflection of what I've just uh, mentioned. You know, people feel that they belong here. People feel that this is the home that has to protect the Jewish people. There is no other home. And uh, as history indicates, we need to have this safe home for us, regardless of where people want to to spend their lives. Israelis who live in New York know that Israel is a safe place for them, no matter whatever happens. And uh, the same for any other uh, jewish people or israelis around the world and uh, they, i guess this is reflected by people moving back to israel now
1: just a, a like a segue from that for a second so the thing that's really struck me over the last four or five days is how a lot of the protests that supposedly are pro-palestinian have turned anti-american uh and anti-british around the world we just saw two days ago uh protesters in new york ripping down americans flags on on veterans day uh trying to break into a Grand Central Station uh, in, in the UK, defacing uh, statues. You, you were a government minister. Um, you've also lived in the U.S. Your kids, as you said, were US, are U.S. citizens. But When you look at this and you kind of elevate from out of the personal and even the national piece of it, uh, how do you think of this moment in history
0: now? So, you know, this is a very good question. And I think that the Western world society and uh its leaders, they really have to take a very serious consideration into what is going on right now and make significant decisions as to where they want the nations, their nations to, to go over the next uh, century. You know, if they just, you know, uh, let these waves, these very bad negative waves pass along and uh, and continue to grow, this is going to be the elimination of the, the the Western world culture and societies as we know them today. Extremism will not stop here at the Gaza border. The fundamentalist uh, belief of eliminating anybody who is not Muslim or is not an extreme Muslim person does not stop at killing Jews and beheading babies and young ladies at the border between Gaza and Israel. This will go anywhere with the Western society is willing to bend their heads and to let this extremism take over because of all kinds of uh, politically correct uh, beliefs or, or other considerations which are totally wrong and irrelevant. I think that what we are seeing today is the proof of naivete of many Western uh, European leaders over the last couple of decades and also in the U.S., if I may say. You know, I have a very high level of admiration to the USA, to, to America, and to the American values. But the fact that anti Semitism is growing so fast and expresses itself in campuses where young people actually are coming about, and then we leave those campuses to, to actually become what America is supposed to be over the next uh, decades. This is a very troublesome situation for the people who created this uh, great nation and the people who still care about the values of democracy and freedom. and uh, and human rights. By letting those uh, anti-Semitic acts and demonstrations go on, and while you are being uh, kind of either supportive or neutral towards pro-Hamas demonstrations, you are supporting atrocities, you are supporting supporting acts and crimes against humanity, and you are somehow um, naive or ignoring the fact, not the assumption, the fact, that this culture will go after you because it is not limited to, to Jews' hatred. It is not limited to anti-Semitism. It is about it is us and it will go anywhere where people are weak enough to allow these cultures to grow and uh, history indicates that they, they, they will not stop there. So what we saw in Europe and in the United States is very troublesome. It's not an Israeli issue. It's a global issue and it's a, actually a very significant moment in history. I still hope and uh, I'm relatively optimistic that the Western world leaders, including the US leaders, will recover, will make the right decisions, and uh, some of them will have to be about tough choices. But if they don't do this, we are talking about a totally different world, less than 100 years from now, maybe even 50 years from now.
1: Yeah, I think 10 years from now for what it's worth. You know, On that point, I want to ask you a policy question, actually. So uh, most Uh, 18 to 24-year-olds get their news from TikTok, Uh, and very clearly a lot of these 18 to 24-year-olds have been radicalized uh, and and somehow either uh, through obliviousness or some sort of insidious behavior uh, have become radicalized with pro-Hamas and pro-violent jihad sentiments. How do you think about TikTok and would it ever occur to you as a minister which you were to, to ban TikTok for that reason?
0: You know, so TikTok is a specific example because it is actually governed by uh, by Chinese um, um, forces. There's always the assumption that something may be there that is uh, not uh, just uh, biased, but also controlled uh, by some central forces. Um, but I will answer you in general, uh, in a more generalistic uh, fashion, uh, Michael, uh, you know, I hate the word regulation. I hate the notion of regulating, you know, the free world and definitely free press and the 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 freedom of expressing yourself and so on but the world is uh, the 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 worldwide regulation is uh, almost like i don't know centuries behind what happened with technology and somehow we have to match the abilities of technology as it is practiced today by evil people by savages by people who are using these technologies on purpose in order to to promote agendas that are Anti-Semitic uh, by by nature, that are racial by racist by nature, and are criminal by other natures. So, the you know the, the the leaders of parliament around the world have to put their heads and have to uh, first of all understand the potential of these new technologies, because you know this is like giving weapons to your enemies in country without limiting them, because you do not understand the ramifications. Somebody walking with a rifle in the street and you didn't put a regulation against it just because you don't know exactly how a rifle works. Once you know that this rifle has bullets that can kill people, you put regulations as to who is allowed to buy that rifle and forget about freedom of of choice and the freedom of movement and so on. Even if you are allowed to own a rifle, speaking in US terms, you are not allowed to walk the streets of New York and to shoot people. So you have to put regulation on social media that will prevent the same kind of damages, and we know today, that using social networks, this is not only about TikTok, you know, you have all kinds of possible ramifications also on uh, fake profiles, the spread of uh, traveling news and other uh, type of uh, media uh, pieces on on Telegram and and other social networks. So the regulators have to understand the, the dangers and have to respond accordingly. You know, this is a moving target. Most of the world regulators, and I was, for one, part of the Israeli parliament, you know, most of the people don't even know what I, you and I have just talked about. You know, just to understand the dangers, the, the potential and the ramifications of your enemy using social networks. By the way, we know today that Israel was attacked many times over the last few years on social networks, on Facebook, on Telegram, on Twitter, obviously on TikTok as well, by uh, very specific enemies using all kinds of targeted uh, psychological uh, weapons. In order to affect the, the society here, so this is not just a theoretical situation. The regulators have to respond, have to understand, and do this rather quickly. I want to ask you just two two more questions, maybe a third. Um, did, did you did you watch the videos of
1: the atrocities committed? Did you bring yourself to watch? No, them? I
0: read the, the descriptions of those uh, videos, but I will not. Uh, I will not look at them. And, and when you think about those videos. Um, uh, of the atrocities
1: uh and the savage behavior and, and the way that the the savages used used videos and social media and telegram uh to do this what, what what's your takeaway about uh whether that stuff should be out in the open or should be controlled i i see on some of i see both sides of it one is that the truth needs to be known about the savages and on the other and I have watched them, you know, it's it's damaging to the soul and damaging to the families of people who have survived. I'm, just, I'm interested in your perspective. Yeah,
0: so first of all, I think that, let me tell you a quick story about this because it's interesting. So, you know, Yaron, our Yavon, our foreign son, had his smartphone on him uh, during uh, this uh, fight, and uh, the smartphone uh, was not with him when he was uh, brought into hospital. It was actually recovered in the, the battlefield a few days later. Uh, so we actually got hold of his uh, cell phone, not before the Israeli Shabak, the Israeli um, uh, security arm of the government, CIA, the, the Israeli CIA. Actually, They actually cleared those phones because it became a known fact that one of the doctrines the Hamas savages used is to uh, recover those uh, cell phones to record atrocities on the cell phones and then to leave them back in the future so that when a family of a foreign soldier gets their cell phone, they first get to see the atrocities of the cell phone of their uh, foreign soldier. This was part of the psychological war for doctrine that these savages went after. It actually happened within uh, the first few days. So we are lucky enough not to have fallen into the same trap just to show you the level of sophistication. And people have to understand that these atrocities were taped and documented on purpose. This is the ISIS philosophy of infiltrating scare and terror on the world. So, you know, the ISIS demonstrations of beheading dozens of people did have its effect on uh, on many people around the world. This is exactly what these uh, murderous savages were trying to do over here. I believe that, first of all, at least the transcripts should be distributed worldwide. I mean, you know, what I thought was said is they should put... same videos without the video just a scripture now we are seeing the torturing of a young lady now we are seeing the shooting of an innocent civilian now you are missing just you know black screen that describes what you have missed over there Maybe showing some noises or whatnot and I think that also this should be limited you know the, the fact and I read all kind of articles just the fact of these descriptions being spread out is very negatively affecting you know, young souls, young kids, and so on, and, they, and adults as well. Um, but after considering all these damages, the news have to be spread around. People have to understand what is the kind of evil we are talking about here. And I think that part of the, this ignorance infiltrates the, the, the hypocrisy of equality, of morals between what happened to us and what happened to them. Part of this discussion that we're seeing over the TV networks, say the BBC and others, Part of this is just sheer hypocrisy, and part of this is just ignorance. People don't—I guess—people can't even uh, envision that human beings can act in such ways. So we have to educate the world. We have to make sure that the world understands that these people tried to document themselves doing the most terrible acts a person can even imagine, because of being proud of doing this, because of uh, you know being happy of doing this, or because of whatever. We have to document it to spread this around the world, but we have to do this in some, I guess, civilized, so to speak, ways, because that's the the only way for people to conceive and understand these What
1: What's the one thing you want to leave investors with? Investors listen to this podcast. What's the one thing you want to tell investors uh, today as they think about uh, today, tomorrow, and the next October, and the next October after that, and the next October after that?
0: Be patient with us for the next few weeks maybe a few months, but uh, when this is over, the Israeli innovation is back in such a stage around the world. You're going to invest here because you're going to make money and good returns, but you're also going to add another good reason. You are fighting sheer evil. You're fighting the people who went after you, not after Israel. They went after the civilized Western world, and had we not stopped them here, you would have faced them in Paris, London, or, God forbid, New York. Invest in Israel because this is the right thing to do.
1: And the last question for you is, it's my perception at least, that Israeli innovation has actually accelerated during this conflict. There's just incredible stuff going on in the technology units of the military, uh, in startups, and the civic response to what's going on, which has been incredible. Uh, most remarkable thing, the last episode, I talked to Ami Daniel about what you know what he did in the early days uh, after October 7th. So now I'm talking to is Harshai who's been a successful entrepreneur successful venture capitalist if you were going to start another startup today uh, one to also memorialize a fallen, what would that startup be that would you know create just a much better world and incredible returns what, what would you do
0: you know i have so many ideas actually some of them use uh, or make use of uh, ai in order to provide for better services media and so on I'm actually toying with an idea, as we speak, of uh, using AI to analyze news and to spread them around in much more efficient and personal, personalized way. Uh, I saw yet another uh, proof of the fact that people consume news, but they need to consume them in different ways than we used to maybe even five years ago. So there are new opportunities to today, new ways to use uh, AI in order to consume media, to distribute media, to understand, to personalize it and so on. Uh, and what I just said is probably the basis of 10, 20 new startups. And I have other ideas as well. I, I think that what's interesting to note, uh, um, uh, Michael here is, uh, he's in you, Thank you for raising this point. Uh, many people came to me because of this uh, Next October project and exposed all kinds of new, fresh ideas. 99% of those ideas have nothing to do with war, conflict, military or whatever. They just have excellent, fresh, Bright ideas. Maybe they, they got their inspiration from the situation, but the, the implementation is not about war or military. It's about making for a better world.
1: Thank you, Ysar, for joining. Uh, our condolences again on uh, Noni. Uh, he he served like you did um, and fell defending all of us. So thank you for that service. Um, for those of you who want to learn more about uh, ishar, you can find him on LinkedIn at Shai, which is I-Z-H-A-R-S-H-A-Y. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars. But I also want to encourage one other thing. Use Facebook Translate and go into the Sipure Noni or the stories about Noni uh, on Facebook. Uh, I just sat at the condolence call and listened to stories. Uh, I have not been to the Facebook page, but I'm going to go now and encourage everybody else uh, to do that. And if you're listening and thinking of starting a startup, no matter where you are in the world, pick up the names of the families of one of the 1,400 fallen people and uh, memorialize memorialize them and and support them through this incredible uh, effort and initiative of ISAR. So thank you, ISAR. And we wish you only happiness and health uh, to you and your whole family going forward and many more grandchildren.
0: Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for having me. And yes, let's work together for a better world. Thank you very much. Deal. Bill, thank you, sir.